Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. We're in Acts. So Mick uh, started us off last week. He introduced the, the book. And uh, he also took us through the first uh, 11 verses. Just to, to recap um, a little bit, I just want to point out two things that, that Mick shared with us, and I think it'll help uh, keep us going uh, through this week as well. So uh, Mick said two things. The first one is, Acts is all about the church. It's a narrative. In other words, a story that recur- records the earliest days of the church on the earth. And the second thing was God wants us to be studying this book together as a church here at Calvary Chapel because I believe that God is doing something special with this little group of people right here. I believe that God is equipping us to go out and do exactly what the church was meant to do. And that is to share the good news of who Jesus is and how much he loves the people in this very city and beyond. But there are things we need to learn along the way, and this book will help us to learn these things. So today, I hope to learn a few things along the way, some, some things that might uh, help us um, help us little group together. So let me pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll get stuck in. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. Thank you for the time that we could have to just sing praises to you. Lord, we do want to know you more. So I pray now as we study your word, Lord, lead me, guide me to teach your people. Lord, I pray that we would know you more today. Amen. So if you go over to the Parliament of Australia website, you quite thrillingly, you are going to read, um, in order to be eligible to become a member of the House of Representatives, a person must have reached the age of 18 years, be a citizen of Australia, be an elector or qualified to become an elector who is entitled to vote in a House of Representatives election, A person is incapable of being chosen or of sitting as a member if he or she has been convicted of bribery, undue influence, or interference with political liberty, or has been found by the court of disputed returns to have committed uh, or attempted to commit bribery or undue influence, right? A person is disqualified by virtue of not being eligible as an elector in accordance with section 163 of the Commonwealth Electoral Act if the person is of unsound mind. So like our government and most governments around the world, not all of them, um, there is a process and there is a criteria in order to be a member of the House of Representatives or of that government. And as there is a a criteria to be involved, so there are actions that may disqualify you. So our passage today, as Alicia read for us, leads us through this motion to replace Judas Iscariot. And it seems to be quite important for them, right? Sort of a 
a first order of business, so to speak, for, for these guys. So we're going to look at this, this passage with uh, three keys, three things maybe that will help us learn something along the way. So first is going to be prayer. Why is it important? And what purpose is it, is it serving for them? And prophecy, how does this fit in with, with this choosing of, of Judas? And process, right? What process did they go through? And this, in the last bit, is where I hope we can get a bit more practical. So first, prayer, right? If you go there to verse, verse 1. Oh, verse 12, sorry. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Just for, just for a moment, I want you to put yourself in, in their shoes, right? These 11. They've been witness to Jesus' ministry and they've been a part of it along the way. They'd seen Judas betray Jesus. They'd been witness to Jesus' death and his resurrection, which we'll see is quite important. And they'd seen Jesus ascend up into heaven. And now, what do they do? The disciples were obedient, right? In that they left the Mount of Olives, where they had just seen Jesus ascend into heaven. If you remember last week in, in verse 11, these men in white had to, to give them a little bit of a, all right, guys, come on, move. Just like, but like, can you imagine? Like, Jesus just ascended into heaven. I'd be standing there just like staring as well, right? I'd promise someone would snap me out of it. And then they travel a, a Sabbath day journey to the upper room. So people have, whether it's very meaningful or not, but people have debated, debated whether Luke is making the point that this occurred on the Sabbath or if it was just giving the distance that they traveled, right? I tend towards it just being a, di a distance that they traveled, a reference to that. Because uh, I don't think that it falling on the Sabbath really uh, checks out. Uh, Baker says, this is because 40 days of appearances from resurrection to ascension, with the resurrection taking place one day after the Sabbath, means the Sabbath is not in view. And what is a Sabbath day journey then, right? Uh, if you have read the, the Gospel of Luke, you know he's pretty detailed orientated, Luke. So this is one of, one of Luke's details, as Mick pointed out for us last week. Uh, it was written by, by Luke, the book of Acts. So the Jews were, were good at making rules for rules and then those rules for those rules and then some more rules to help them keep those rules and so on and so forth. Um, so like the rule is like the paddock in the middle and they build a fence to keep that and then another fence for that fence. So yeah, you get the point. So they were good at this. So the key rule, right? Keep the Sabbath holy. So they go, all right. So how do we do that? We don't work on the Sabbath. All right, good. So how do we not work on the Sabbath? Because, you know, I might need to walk, blah, 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 blah. So they came up with a rule that says not to walk more than about 2,000 cubits, which is about 1.2K, right? Any more, 1.3, that's work. So these guys walk approximately or they're about 1.2Ks. And that's just uh, a bit of a side note. Maybe unimportant, uh, but yeah, interesting information. But what is important, Acts 1-4 tells them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the Holy Spirit. So they traveled a short distance from the Mount called Olivet into Jerusalem. Not sure if you remember how, how these guys normally responded after hearing a, a teaching or an instruction from Jesus. Sometimes it was good, but often it was with confusion or arguing amongst themselves or fearfulness, right? But this time, they go back and they wait. They obey. What creates this, this change in them? I think it might be one thing. I think it's the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, when you and I see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually created change, what did it do for you and me? It won salvation, right, for us. Our response then should be obedience to Christ. That should be our response to what he's done for us. And I know we're only sort of just getting started. We're in verse one, but... What is, what is your response to the fact that Jesus conquered sin and death on your behalf? His death, his resurrection, we're coming up to Easter. Won that for you. Is your response apathy? Just blissful ignorance? Rebellion, maybe? Resistance? Or obedience? What's your response? Next in, in verses 13 through 14, it says, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, important part, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother mother of Jesus and his brothers. Again, build that picture in your mind. Put yourself maybe in this room if you can. What would be going through your mind, right? Again, Jesus had been put to death on a Roman cross. You have then seen the empty tomb or at least heard of his resurrection. Jesus has then appeared to people, left, right, and center, right? He's making appearances for 40 days. And then Jesus has also promised the Holy Spirit, the helper. Jesus then ascends into heaven. And now you're sitting in this room as a follower of this Jesus. Maybe you're one of the other 120, including 11 of Jesus' disciples, closest, and Jesus' immediate family. But Jesus, he's not physically there with you anymore. You've been seeing him around town or you've been walking with him, following him around, but he's not there with you anymore. What differentiates you and I from this situation? Maybe the position in historical timeline or the actual people in the room. But I think what's more important is what's not so different. What's not different for you and I is Christ's death for us, Christ's resurrection, his ascension, and Christ being revealed to us through the scripture. And the promise as well of Christ's return. Do you see the, that pattern there? Whether two minutes after Christ's ascension or 2,000 plus years later, it's Christ that's uniting these people 
They're all in that room because of what Jesus had done. We're sitting here in this room because of what Christ has done for us. It's Christ that unites us. And what do we see the, the church doing here? Because this is the, the early church, remember? What do we see them doing? Is it thinking about how they're going to build their big empire of the church? Is it defining themselves as different to every other denomination or every other person that said they followed Jesus? Is it focused on maybe having a really good sounding music or really good sounding sermons? Is it focused on how many programs or events they might be able to organize? What do we see them do? Remember, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Christ has been physically taken from their presence, but we see that prayer is a unifying ingredient for the early church. Prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts and is in 20 of the 28 chapters. I'll give you two examples. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And Acts 6.4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. These men and women are the early church and the choosing of the 12th apostle that's just about to happen was not the only decision that they're going to have to make. But they first obeyed, then they prayed as though they were one. On Wednesday nights when we meet for Bible study, I missed uh, doing my announcement before James uh, reminded me. Um, so I'll make my announcement now, Wednesday nights, Bible study, all right, 7.30. When we have our Bible study on, on Wednesday night, right, we read the word together and we discuss it. And I'm built up, I'm encouraged, I'm challenged. But when we share prayer requests and praise points with another, one another, and then we come before God and we commit those things to him, that's unifying. This last Wednesday night, we had such an amazing time of sharing with each other and, and praying together. That's unifying. Why? Because all is laid bare at the throne of God. When we come to him in prayer, we're all equally unworthy of being there. But we are all equal recipients of his grace. So good. So prayer unifies us as believers. But I think it also readies us and prepares us to serve God. How so? If we look from a bit of an observational standpoint, right? what are some of the common things that you pray for as a Christian? Uh, God, Lord, grant me wisdom in this situation. Lord, show me what you would have me do. Lord, prepare my heart for what it is that you would have me learn from your word, right? Open my heart and mind. Lord, have your hand on this situation and guide me. That's a bit of a short list. Prayer readies us through acknowledging God in the situation, aligning our will to God's will, and recalling his faithfulness to us when we remember the things that he's already done for us. So we're one in Christ. 
Prayer is a key ingredient in maintaining the unity of believers. And prayer readies the believers for service of Christ. The next part, the next P is prophecy. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons wasn't all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out lovely and it became known to all the inhabitants of jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama that is field of blood for it is written in the book of psalms may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let one take his office so peter stands up right and he takes the lead and says brothers the scriptures had to be fulfilled Peter knew the scriptures, and like every good Jew, when there's a prophecy, he knew it had to be fulfilled at some point. Peter, along with the other disciples, I think are starting to, to get it, right? They knew the scriptures when, when they walked with Jesus, but again, they often did confuse the prophecies and essentially sometimes just ignore what Jesus was saying about his own death to, to come. But now Peter is, is looking through the lens, and I think that's primarily because they were hoping that Jesus would come and conquer, right? The Romans. But now Peter is looking through the lens of Jesus, not the Roman killer, but Jesus, the suffering servant. He's seen the way that Jesus has walked. He's seen the way that Jesus has interacted with each and every person he's come across. One commentator points out that the verb had to is from, the word, uh, from dei, which is used as a logical or divine necessity. Sorry, just skip down here. So if the scriptures had to be fulfilled, what are these scriptures that had to be fulfilled by divine necessity or logical conclusion? Psalm 69:25 and Psalms 109.8. Psalm 69.25 says, May their camp be a desolation, and may no one dwell in their tents. And Psalm 109.8 says, May his days be few, may another take his office. Not sure about you, but I looked at this, and read the Psalms, and went back to Psalm 69, read all of it, went back to Psalm 109.8, and went, Okay, Peter, how did you... How did you just come up with these two passages for, to get your conclusion, right? And I had to think about it. So I thought there for a while, and I looked at these two psalms, and I was like, okay, both these psalms are psalms of David. In both these psalms, David is crying out to the Lord and asking God to hear him. In both these psalms, and in these two verses in particular, David is speaking to God about his enemies. It's no Judas Iscariot mentioned in, in those psalms. So what is Peter getting at? How is he interpreting these psalms? What's his hermeneutic, so to speak? 
The technical term, Peter's using a typological prophetic manner, but just to be normal, in my language, Peter sees a type of Judas in these Psalms. So what type of Judas does he see? He sees in a way an enemy of the gospel. He sees a position that has been left desolate by Judas. And he sees the position and the office needing to be filled. Verse 17 in our passage today says, he was numbered among us and he was allotted his share, speaking of Judas, in this ministry. That share, that allotment is now empty and needs to be filled. Also, if you were like me, then you're asking, why did he need to be replaced now? Should Peter maybe have not waited a bit? Did he jump the gun? And why these two, two guys that they end up choosing from? So why now and why them? So some hold the position that this was rushed and they really should have waited for someone, say like Paul, down the track. I pondered this as well, but I don't think this holds true. I'll give you one line of reasoning. The 12 apostles are mainly apostles to Jews. That's the quick answer. So remember when Jesus first sent out the 12? Matthew 10.5 says, These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, go without pay. Then just last week in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So you can see that although the apostles did end up reaching the rest of the world or as they would call it, the Gentiles, they primarily were witnesses to the Jews. And why not Paul? This is a bit of a, a lengthy passage, but it's good, so I'm going to read it all. So Galatians 1, 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. This is Paul talking. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son Jesus to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, 
how he used to persecute us and is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. So simply, there's a lot I want to get into, but the 12 apostles, Jew first, Paul, Gentile first. So why now? Did Peter rush it when he should have waited? Peter makes this call, and I hope you've seen, and we'll see by the end when we get through the process. Peter makes this call not as a rush one, but as a considered through prayer and through revealed wisdom from the scriptures. I believe he feels a sense of urgency to get on with what he has been called to. You can see it, right? He stands up. The scriptures need to be fulfilled. This is where Judas went wrong. We need to replace him because we're going to receive the power from the Holy Spirit to be what? Witnesses of the resurrection. We need to get this sorted and we're going to get the Holy Spirit and we're going to go out there. One final comment on why now. These 12 are not going to be perpetually replaced, right? Each time one dies. We're just replacing Judas. I think this, this comment from, from Baker sums it up pretty well. Scripture leads Peter to ensure that the core apostolic circle consists of 12 members. The move to replace Judas is part of his judgment. Judas, uh, part of the judgment Judas experiences. William makes the point that it is Judas's apostasy that means his um, declining of Christ, not his death that requires his replacement. Because after the death of James, the son of Zebedee, which we'll get to all the way in Acts 12, no replacement is made or noted. Once a faithful member becomes the replacement, the effort uh, to have 12 is not to be continually perpetuated. So that's why now. So I don't think Peter rushed it. I think he knew the urgency and the timing. Why them? I think in order to, to answer this, we need to look at what the criteria is and what the position is. So what's the criteria? Verse 21 tells us. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. We don't find this criteria necessarily outlined directly in other parts of Scripture. So what some have referred to this as is sanctified common sense. And Guzik puts it this way, their common sense was sanctified because it came as they were in obedience, in fellowship, in prayer, in scripture, and desiring God's will. See, Peter has just made it clear in verse 17 that he, Judas, was numbered among them, among the 12, and was allotted his share in the ministry. Then at the end of verse 20, he concludes from the Psalms, let another take his office. Peter then comes to the conclusion that this can't just be anyone. They can't just pick from an innumerable amount of people. This person had to have been a witness to everything from John preparing the way in the desert for Jesus, John's baptism, to Jesus ascending into heaven. I think why this is important is at the end of verse 22, right? 
one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Keep in mind, right, that this is all so fresh for these guys. They're operating without the physical presence of Jesus now. You want the people who are starting and kicking off the church to know the right information. This word witness uh, is a Greek word, martis or martyra. The, this is where we get the word martyr from, right? And this carries the sense of someone giving a public testimony of what they believe. And then if you follow the word to the, to the full conclusion that we have in our word, now someone who would be willing to die even for what they were proclaiming. So to put this into a little bit of a, an analogy, and yes, the premise for this analogy is borrowed, but if we're going to start, say, uh, an engineering company, right? You don't go out and find the best chefs you can find. You go and you hire engineers to start your engineering business. There is a criteria that needs to be met. And Peter sees that there is a criteria to be met in order to be at the foundation of the church. So what was the, what was the position? The term apostle means one who is sent. And there's two primary uses of, of this word. The first is specifically referring to the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And the second is generically referring to other individuals who are sent out as messengers or ambassadors for Jesus. But what makes these 12 unique is that they were chosen specifically by Jesus other than Matthias. They met the criteria we just went through and they hold special importance when Jesus returns and sets up his eternal rule and reign. And I think point three of that is uh, a whole sermon in and of itself um, about how that all works out. But just briefly, Revelation 21, 14 says, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's referring to these guys, these 12. So we have them on Jesus's first coming, these 12, as the ones being chosen as the foundation of the church and Jesus's message going forward. Then they are described as the foundation for the new kingdom that Christ will come and set up. So the position of apostle that is being filled in this context we are speaking about today is the specific 12. We're not making specific apostles anymore. It was just these 12 guys. So we've looked at prayer, we've looked at prophecy. Now the last one is the process. So I hope you've been noticing the, the process as we've been going through prayer and prophecy. That is the process, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, in order to arrive at this choosing of Matthias. And there's six, I think, in total, and I want to just go through them briefly. I have a question for us at the end of each one, and we'll get practical. I've been challenged by this this week, so I hope you are too. So the first step in the process is that the apostles, remember we looked at it, were obedient. Jesus had told them to go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise and the power of the Spirit, and they did. 
They are faithfully waiting, but they're waiting with purpose. They are meeting together, praying, looking at the word, and making decisions for what next. But they're still waiting. They're being obedient to what they've been told. So how do you go? How do I go with obedience? You might have great things on the horizon. You might be going through something really difficult. And the answer is not yet or wait. How do you go with that? Do we, does Daniel try and rush things and go with my own plan instead of what God has told me and made clear to me? Or do we say, God, I will be faithful and obedient to you in the waiting. So obedience. Second is prayer. Jesus had taken time to teach the disciples how to pray, and he also modeled the importance of prayer to them. Right up to his final breath, when he calls out and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We can see that this brought unity, not only between them there in the room, but also a closeness to God in their decision making. Here's the question. What role does prayer play for you and I? Is prayer your last resort or is prayer your first response? My story about mowing the lawn at the start might be a bit silly, but hey, God answered my prayer. Absolutely he did. He held that rain off for me. The third step is scripture. Peter has a high view of scripture. Peter knows the scriptures, recognizes that it is God's word, and that God's word has something to say about where we are at. Here's your question. How do I, how do you treat the word of God? Is it old and outdated? Is it read when you feel like it? Or do we, like Peter, know the scriptures, recognize that it is God's word and that through them, God has something to say to us about where we are at right now, today. Number four, the fourth step is prudence. Two definitions of this could be the ability to govern and disciplines oneself by the use of reason or the skill and good judgment in the use of our resources. Or as Dr. Seuss might say, you got brains in your head and feet in your shoes. We see reasons and resources and judgment being used here to set criteria, right? To choose this apostle. God has given each of us a good mind. They've given us, God's given us skills and abilities. And if you're a Christian here today, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you as well. Question, are we being prudent? Are we using those resources well with what God has given us? How are you using the skills and abilities God has given you? Number five, intent. The apostles have now put forward two men, right? And they say, God, you know the heart of these men. Show us which one. 
The apostles have gone through this process to pick these men. And they go, God, who knows all and sees all, and they ask him to look at the hearts on what they cannot see with the human eye. And I believe what they ask God here is to see the intentions of their heart. If you have concerns about your heart health physically, you hopefully go see the doctor or go to the hospital if it's that bad, and they do a series of tests, right? To see if indeed there's something actually wrong with your heart or you're just being a hypochondriac. Question, do you allow God to examine the intentions of your heart? We can do the right thing with the wrong reasons or motives. If you aren't already, ask God to examine your intentions and motives in what you do. And then the sixth and the final step is trusting the outcome to God. I want to take a couple more minutes on, on this one. Verse 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So you might be asking, is Daniel now telling me to trust God with the outcome is to cast lots? My direct answer is no, that's not what I'm saying. What does it mean for us then? I think the key is the work of the Holy Spirit. If you were here last week, you remember Mick pointed out that there are two main views on the work or the indwelling of the Spirit and when this occurred. One is that the miraculous events of Pentecost that we see in the next chapter, in chapter 2, is the first time that the believers are indwelt with the Spirit. Or the second is that the indwelling occurred immediately after the ascension and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event. So you can go back and listen to, to Mick's sermon for, for a bit more detail. So whatever view you take, or maybe you don't even have a view on this, I think two things are clear. The apostles were still learning what it is to follow God in light of Jesus ascending and leaving them. And secondly, God understands this and he's working with it. See, the casting of lots was a tradition that they had, right? It was a way they used to say, all right, God, you direct the final outcome. They throw the dice or the bones or whatever it might be, and they let God make them fall where they may. Today, you and I, we live with a greater knowledge of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Romans 8:14 says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We don't cast lots today. This is not part of our culture. And we see that it's not part of what they do going forward or part of what the church does going forward. This is the last time we see them cast lots. But what are we called to do as believers? We're called to be led by the Spirit. So how do we practice being led by the Holy Spirit? How do we gain this, this knowledge of what it is to walk in the Spirit? Well, I think you can go back to our previous questions. Being obedient to what God has called you, by having prayer as your first response, having it as an importance to you, by reading God's word, 
knowing it, knowing that it meets you where you're at and has something to say. By being prudent with God's words and the gifts that he's given you. By examining your heart and allowing God to examine your heart for your motives and intentions. And this will allow us to be led by the Spirit. So, your question, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to lead? Or are you fighting for control of that lead? I want to conclude by asking, if you are a believer today, how are you going with trusting God with the outcome? Being led by the Spirit to that outcome. If you don't consider yourself a, a Christian today, if you don't consider Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, I want to encourage you to consider our first step in the process. What does it mean to be obedient to Jesus Christ? God is calling you and he's calling me to be a part of his family. Have we been obedient to that call? And are we being led by his spirit? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, thank you that you extend that to us each and every day. Father God, it's amazing to see you working amongst your people, even from the start. God, these guys or these people sitting in the room would have been experiencing so much. Going from having you amongst them physically to seeing you being put to death then seeing that you rose from the dead and you were appearing to people, to then seeing you go up into heaven. Lord, that might have been a moment of, of feeling alone, but also there was a knowledge that the Spirit would indwell, would lead, and would guide. Father God, I pray that as believers, Lord, you would teach us day by day what it is to walk in your spirit. Lord, help us to be obedient to you, prayerful. God, I pray that we would be united here at Calvary Chapel. And not just in this little fellowship, but with other believers in Newcastle and Australia and beyond. Lord, we want to go out into this world as ambassadors as witnesses of the resurrection. And we want to do that well. So God, would you help us? We can't do that in our own strength, Lord, but by your spirit, we can do that well. God, and for those who may not know you or may not have committed their life to you, God, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would be with them, and may they know what it is to live in relationship with you. God, a Father who loves and cares for us deeply. A Father who humbled himself, came to earth as Jesus and put himself on the cross so that we could have salvation. Lord, and then showed his power by raising from the dead. Showed his power over sin and death. Lord, thank you that we can have a relationship with you by the work of Jesus. Thank you that we can have the indwelling of the Spirit to lead us and guide us through our day by day.
Thank you for your word that you've given that teaches us. Lord, we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.